This episode is supported by Dove. Over half of the girls around the world suffer from low self-esteem, which causes them to opt out of important life activities and puts their health at risk. The Dove Self-Esteem Project is the world's largest provider of self-esteem education and teaches the next generation to feel comfortable in their own skin by working with schools and parents. Dove has created and uses educational evidence-based resources that are designed to help young girls and boys reach their full potential. They cover topics like bullying and social media to help young people build a positive relationship with the way they look. You can get these printable resources to help increase self-esteem in the young people in your life at dove.ca slash self-esteem. But Alex. Yeah, Shane? Let's begin the episode. <laughs> let's do it. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my husband, Shane. The babies are in bed, the cat is in her room, and we are so glad that you could join us for happy hour on this Family Tree Podcast, episode 69. And Alex has stuff all over her mouth. What do, oh, what do I have? I don't know. Like in the corner of your mouth. Oh, I was eating popcorn. Oh, the cheesy. <laughs> yeah, the smart food. Nice. Episode 69. Wow. Six, nine. I'd make an inappropriate joke, but. Why? What is 69? Beats me. Wait, is that when people are giving each other? Hey. I, won't, I won't say it. <laughs> this is a family podcast for the whole family, as long as everyone in the family is over 18, because this can get explicit it can. at times. We try not to, though. I guess it's more of a parenting podcast. Yeah. And well, we're parents. We are parents. Maybe sometimes that's where it ends. In terms, because, you know, <laughs> sometimes terms, we have guests no, that have nothing I, to do with parenting. I agree, but our guest tonight has a lot to do with parenting. And we have on Dr. Cheryl Ziegler. She's a psychologist, a TED Talks presenter, and the author of Mommy Burnout, which is an incredible book. If you're feeling like you might be burnt out without even having read it, I suggest you pick it up. So with Cheryl, we talk about how burnout manifests, what to do if you're suffering from it, parenting, exhaustion in general, and hospital fantasies. And the difference between burnout and just just being really, really stressed out. Yes, which I think, I like. I don't know anybody who's not really, really stressed out at this point in time. True that. <laughs> Parents are not. I would assume it would be a good read, even, even if you don't have the technical definition of burnout and you are just really stressed mm-hmm. out. I would assume this book could still really help you out. No, absolutely. She's got amazing strategies, and I think you're all going to get a lot from this talk. But Shane, babe, cheers, 69. Wait till the pod's done. <laughs> oh, I see. What do you think? Well, let's tell the audience what we're cheersing. All right. We are drinking an orchard spritz. So it's made with Seedlip Garden 108, non-alcoholic sparkling wine. I made from scratch an orchard cordial with apple juice, pear juice, made it into a syrup. It's like, you know, I I worked hard for this one. Well, I hate to say it's not the best. Ah, why don't you like it? It's not that I don't like it. It's just it's not the best. I think it's so refreshing. Like there's too, there's not enough flavor. I feel like you got the mix wrong of water, the ratio to water and syrup. You know what? Maybe, hold on. Give it to me. Okay, just be careful with that glass. I will. Okay, Alex has rejigged the drink. Let me take a sip. You may have been right about the ratios. Yeah, this is a little bit better right now. I think I put in too much soda. Did you stir this drink? I did. With a f- clean finger, I hope, or uh... no, I stirred it with a spoon. What? Nice, that's even better. <laughs> okay. Personally, I'm into it. It got off to a bad first start, but it is refreshing, and I do like it twenty times better than I did before. <laughs> I'm glad. No, I put in too much soda. I was actually using red wine glasses, and it suggests to put it in white wine glasses, which are smaller. 
Everyone knows that, Alex. I know. Well, I'm just I'm saying. I'm kidding. No one. I did not know that. <laughs> All right, Shane. What do you have for me for topics? Christmas is over. Are we bummed out about that? Yeah. I am. I love okay, the magic of it. Okay, next topic. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you? I am. Like, it was, I didn't realize what I had before Christmas. I was enjoying it, but I didn't know how much I was enjoying it. Turns out, knowing what I feel now after Christmas, I was really enjoying it. Going out, seeing the lights, walking around with Lucy. It was something to do in a time when there's not that much to do. Yeah, you know, I even liked the added routine it gave me, which was coming down in the morning, turning on the tree, turning on the little lights all over the house, lighting the Christmas candles. And it was like a very relaxing, satisfying, happy routine. But one thing that makes me not feel as bad as maybe I would typically in the months of January and February, like last year, maybe there was even a heavier cloud hanging over Jan and Feb. It's that my relationship with time is Mm. going by so much faster than it ever did before. It's borderline scary. It's like I feel like I'm just to be totally hyperbolic going to be dead soon like everything (laughs) seems like wow this it's almost christmas again i feel like no i you know what the weeks fly by in what used to feel like a day or not a day the three days maybe right and i think honestly a day goes so quick there might be moments in it where i'm like oh my god it's never ending but the second it's over i i don't even notice having lived it and that is scary does that mean that we're not living in the moment? Because I, I feel like we are, but then... Well, it's like what people say when you live in LA, the time goes by faster because every day feels the same because the weather is so consistent. Mm. And it may be that effect because our lives are so consistent right now and predictable that time, there's not, enough, there's not as many markers on time. It's freaky. Which scares me, but it does make me feel when the times are bad, I'm like, ah, a day's going to feel like a minute. Well, I saw a meme today, actually. It said, time has lost all its meaning. The only two things that hold any weight having to do with time are coffee time and wine time. And I very much feel like that. Not necessarily wine, because like, we don't drink every night of the week, but it's like Speak coffee Speak for yourself, time. sister. But it's like coffee time in the morning, and then you know whatever our relaxing drink is in the evening. That's totally what it is to me now. Wow. Genius meme account right <laughs> yeah propping up coffee and wine that's good uh, give me the follow can we, can we say that account oh i i don't know what it was no. i just saw it i, don't I know. know i'm kidding all the mom accounts are like <laughs> it's coffee o'clock it's wine o'clock like <laughs> two best times of the day coffee time <laughs> wine time and bedtime so we've talked about that now i wanted to talk about date night we right we had a date night and Every date night, not to get too graphic here, we do the nasty. I'm, Why do you have to say it like that? I'm kidding. We we get in the mess. No, we we have intercourse, and it's very wild and unbridled. I'm kidding. I don't even know what unbridled means. But I guess you. No way. You were using that term correctly. I was. For what it's worth. It's yes. unbridled, and it's so unbridled, in fact, that. You got a headache and gave me the headache excuse, which is odd. Anyone following this podcast for any length of time knows Alex loves it more than anything, it being intimate time. Yeah, uh, I had I had a headache. Honestly, it was so brutal. Were it you know a minor headache, just a fleeting headache, that's fine. I say, let's get on with the show. However, it had been like a three-day migraine. Betty has been sleeping terribly the past 
I don't even know when she slept well. You know, it gets better and then it gets bad again. So I've just been in a zone of like sleep, what sleep deprivation, exhaustion, and headaches, which is a sign of burnout, by the way, as you'll learn with Cheryl. But fair play. I'm down with it. When you tell me you have a headache or anything, I don't get grumpy. I don't cross my arms. I don't huff, even though I was ready for it. Right. I, I, was, very, I, was, I was too. I was and too. We crack open a bottle of wine. A nice bottle. We ordered these ridiculous. Oh my we god! We ordered these insane burgers that were like the size of my head. No, they and they actually were like they were that tall. No exaggeration. And you know, the next day I wake up after drinking the the half bottle, and I don't drink that that mm-hmm. often. And this food actually was giving me a minor, like it was making me feel like total shit the next well, we, morning. It was way too much. It was way too rich. And yeah. I honestly don't think I can order that meal ever again. Of course not. No. <laughs> it looked great on paper, but when it showed up, it was just our eyes were way bigger than our stomachs. Yeah. But we, we paid so much for it that we felt <laughs> obligated to eat it all. And then the next day, I'm not feeling too good. So Alex is all chipper and she's like, hey, sex tonight? And I'm like, huh, like I hate to say this, but I feel like I can get away with it because you weren't feeling well yesterday. I said, I'm actually not feeling that great today. Could we hold it off till Friday? And of course, the (laughs) arms are crossed, feet are stomping. I wasn't stomping my, maybe my arms Metaphorically speaking, I'm saying the way you looked was like knives were going through me. And it's just the beginning. And I just started a new routine where I, I decided maybe Alex probably needs an extra hour of sleep every morning. Morning. Yes. So let's prolong Alex's sleep because it selfishly it benefits me because when you're in a good mood, I feel mm-hmm. like the day's way better. But first day of this new sleep routine, I'm like, <laughs> oh, she's going to be loving me. Then you're a total B. <laughs> so here's the thing. I wasn't trying to be a B to you. I was upset with myself for you know, having this headache and not finding the willpower, I guess, to do it because I was like oh man like now I messed it up now we're not gonna do it at all and I'm just you know like making myself suffer through all of this and it was more of me being ticked off with myself I guess and with just general like you know I I don't like to delay things I don't like to miss a night when we have it on the schedule and it's yeah it, it it bummed me out well I think we should treat each other the way we want to be treated or equally or whatever, you know, because when you came at me with the headache thing, although I was revved up, my pants were very <laughs> tight that night. What? <laughs> no, they were. I was saying, I'm not saying because my pants were made tight. I'm just saying I was wearing uncomfortable pants to look nice. I thought we both looked nice. Yeah. We did. Yeah. But what I'm saying is karma, like you were being a bee. But karma can be a B too. Yeah. And you burnt your hand very badly that night. Oh my God. Which even if you wanted to do it, we wouldn't have been able to. So yeah, here's the thing. So I felt bad for, you know, causing a bit of a stir in the morning for not being able to do it. So I mm-hmm. wanted to make a really nice dinner for Shane and like make it up to him and see if I can cajole him. Is that the right word? Yes. Yeah. And I want to see if I could cajole you through food and I made like these really beautiful steaks and awesome Brussels sprouts but the steaks that I did I did them on like I seared them in a pan and moved them to the oven but because they're in like my stovetop pan when I saw that pan on the stove after it had been in the oven I just like totally forgot about it grabbed it with my entire hand singed my hand it was 
the most intense pain I I don't know it was like the most intense uh what do you call it like pain in a direct spot like in a specific spot I get it yeah yeah it was awful and yeah couldn't do it hands are very off the table hands are underrated in intimate times they're very important <laughs> so you couldn't have done it i couldn't help because you. the foreplay involves the hands a lot well just the the whole the cuddling yeah even when you when you caress my cheek when we kiss it's with yeah. the hand that was burnt no yeah. so then the, the next night i thought your hand was going to be too burnt but it turns out it miraculously healed and we were able to shockingly complete the mission but i want to say for anybody that does have a you know a terrible hand burn whether it's your own hand burn or somebody else's hand burn so everything we were looking up online said you know to soak your hand in like running water not cold but cool running water for about a half hour and then you know apply dressings or whatever and a lot of people were suggesting to me like butter lavender oil all this stuff I didn't want to play with anything because we called we called my uncle who's a doctor and he said not to put anything on it. But my hand is like in almost perfect condition. And I think the reason is because I did not leave it under the running water for 30 minutes. I kept it in cool water for, for about eight hours because that's how long it took. You fell asleep sting. with your hand in. Yeah. Well, it, it hurt too much to take it out. And honestly, because of that, my, like, my hand should look like... Who's a burned... Who's the burned... Freddy Krueger has a burned yes, hand. Yeah. Yes. So like my hand should look like Freddy Krueger, but it doesn't. It looks like pretty perfect. Yeah. You could be a hand model. Thank you. But that morning we did, not an argument. I tried to give you, because I'm done with arguing really. I, I don't like arguments, but I wanted to give you, a, like I wanted to get a load off. <laughs> That's bad wording. <laughs> I wanted to uh, tell you what was on my mind in a calm, serious way. Right. And this is a huge problem in our relationship. When I do this, you give mirror face. You look at yourself. When, when I'm talking to you in any way like this, you'll somehow find a mirror. And we, we have a fairly large mirror, <laughs> like a full-length mirror on our, our closet door. And you'll look at yourself and you'll pose and you'll pucker your lips and... It's and you do Shane, this every time we're arguing. Shane, you'll you, find a mirror. Stop. Okay, you are putting way too much uh, thought, like seemingly thought, into this mirror thing. Like I'm not like standing in front of the mirror and like fixing myself and puckering and posing like intentionally. It's like here's okay. When we're arguing, I want to make sure like I don't have like some crazy things sticking out of my mom bun or like food on my face because then you're just going to take me less seriously in the argument. So if I can just get a quick glimpse at myself, make sure everything's cool. And this happens in a millisecond. I'm surprised you even catch it. It happens in a millisecond. Do the quick look. Fine. Okay. Then we can keep talking. I'm not like standing there pressing myself up. I could be in a terrible accident. Someone could come in and be like, Alex, Shane's hurt. And you... <laughs> Take a look in the mirror and pucker your lips and do duck face. You don't see you. Uh, Well, I guess you do all the time, actually, if there's a reflective (laughs) surface. But you don't see how weird it looks. No, I'm not saying it doesn't look weird. I bet it does look weird. But the thing is, thought doesn't go into it. It's like just... It's an impulse. It's like it's an impulse, but I don't think about it. So I'm not standing there thinking like, "Ooh, let's puck." I'm not saying you're actively thinking about it, but because it's an impulse doesn't mean it's not a disrespectful impulse. And it might be something that during arguments, serious discussions, uh, bereavement periods, that we don't look in the mirror. Bereavement. Well, your limits are endless. I think. 
And I'm not saying you're this, you're way more conceited or self-obsessed than I am. I'm just saying the moments that you pick and choose to do the mirror face is the most inopportune moments. Shane, okay, if we were getting into a serious discussion and I had like a booger sticking out of my nose for the whole time, would you... How with, often do you have boogers sticking out of your nose, Alex? Often. It's the winter. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that side of you. Because I'm always looking in the mirror, making sure that they're gone, Shane. This is grossing me out more than I anticipated. It's winter. Everything gets so you dry. You have that many boogers? Well, it's just I get really dry because when I go like go for runs and things like that, and when I'm outside with the girls, I get a drippy nose. And then when I come back in the house, it like, dries up. And then I always have to make sure there's not stuff there. Mm-hmm. Why, just use your fingers, maybe. Because... <laughs> Yeah, just use your fingers because I do find the mirror face thing is, and maybe I don't know if anyone else can relate to this, but when you're trying to be serious and you do the mirror face, it feels like you're not listening to me. I know, and I get that. I see that. But, you know, for those listening, I also want it made clear that, like, I don't even consciously think about you're it. Not and over I'm, that part, I know, but yeah. I'm not looking in there for longer than, I'm not, not for more than a half second. It's like a glance, and that's it. It's not just the glance. It's a glance and the face you no, make. No, I do the face at the same time as the glance. So it all happens in 0.5 seconds. Okay, but duration and impact are not correlated. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Did you just do that as a joke? Yes. I just did. I just picked up my phone. This is not reflective mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, because another thing you do too, if we're, if we're having an argument, <laughs> and there's like a crumb on the floor, you'll be like, oh, there's a breadcrumb there. Mid argument, it's like the breadcrumbs important right now. Okay, I like so. I like to find breaks in the drama. I think. Yeah, so that's just my little dad's corner, you could call it. Oh, next complainer's topic. corner. No, Alex, my next topic. I'm segueing oh. into. <laughs> so Alex does this whole post and talks about how I'm going to be featured on the account. We're calling it Dad's Corner. It's this picture of me. A nice write up. Every day I'm like, we doing Dad's Corner today? It's like. <laughs> mirror face um well think about dad's corner i got this other great post i'm like all right tomorrow it is you know i'm showering i'm doing my hair i'm coming down like dad's corner today like what kind of pose should i be doing for this instagram post you're like think about dad's corner as you know it's gonna be on the weekend because saturday is probably the best vibe for dad's corner i'm like okay it doesn't make sense but it sound logic (laughs) do your mirror face saturday comes today's saturday no Dad's Corner, no mention of Dad's Corner. What is going on with Dad's Corner? That's because we're doing it tomorrow on Sunday. So those listening will have already read it. Because this will come out on Monday. Everybody could be like, wow, that Dad's Corner on Sunday was great. So Shane, I expect you showered tomorrow morning <laughs> because I have a great photo shoot planned. And we're going to do Dad's Corner. Are you serious? Yeah. Glad I brought it up. <laughs> okay. I wanted to also talk about how we are doing a new pod episode per week. I mentioned it last week, but I wanted to get a prep week in, and we are going to start a date night series. Yeah. You know, I thought that this would be the last thing that I would ever want, like work on date night, because we are so busy working the majority of days, nights, whatever of the week. But... This idea sounds like so much fun and I wanted to talk to Shane anyway about having more active date nights in the sense of like, you know, the activity. So usually we like watch a movie that we rent, we pay money for, we have a really good time. 
But now instead of renting the movie, I want to try getting gamey and like playing games. We have a shuffleboard table in the middle of our house. So I want to play that. We just bought Scrabble today. We got what else? Jenga. Jenga. So I want to get more gamey. And this podcast idea just sounds so perfect. Well, we're going. We're also part of a wine club, mm-hmm. so we are going to see if we can detect the notes and tannins, whatever the heck that means, and figure out the wines together and learn about wines. And we're going to be doing this all year because we have a wine subscription for the year. <laughs> and some of these wines have been quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I wish we were actually doing this idea a month ago because we had one wine that tasted like pizza. Gross sounding, I know, but it was actually delicious. delicious. What was that wine called? Again? Super cool. Yeah. That was it really By Rose Rose Hall Vineyards, I think. One of the best wines I've had. Now it is it it's probably a polarizing wine, and I was almost embarrassed to bring it up to your parents. Turns out your parents didn't actually like it, and I was feeling like, okay, maybe my palate just stinks. But really good friends of ours mm-hmm. who also are wine connoisseurs, also like your parents, meaning not <laughs> us, because we're just learning. But they love they super cool, as they, you say. <laughs> they buy it by the case. Mm-hmm. And they also said that Rose Hall makes another good wine called Night Moves, which we have yet to try. I've heard of that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I hope that. that can happen. So if you are interested in, you know, tasting wines with us, learning how to taste wines with us and just hanging out for a really short, like 20 minute conversation, a fun little combo on date night, do it up. I think it'll be a good time. Yeah, I think it'll be a good segment yeah. uh, for people who hate the longer pods. This mm-hmm. might be maybe they'll only listen to the date night episodes. Hey, I'm here for it if they are. What movie did we see this week? Yeah, I forgotten. It was the one with Bill Murray and oh, Rashida we, Jones. We saw On the Rocks. It's on Apple TV if anyone has that. It's, mm-hmm. Apple TV is actually free if you mm-hmm. bought an iPhone in the next year. I think it was a decent film. Okay, so it grew on me. Mm-hmm. It's you know about a, a woman who thinks her husband is cheating on her and her dad is kind of trying to help her figure out if he is or not. And, and just- I hate watching <laughs> movies with you, by the way, if the subject revolves around cheating. Alex will really tense up. She just hates the movie, the character who's cheating, <laughs> me for laughing at a scene that the character was cheating in or anything. So originally I'm like, I've made a terrible mistake, but you were fairly good to watch with. Yeah, no, I had a great time watching it. Um, you know, during the movie. I guess it was about catching the cheater, so that made it better. Maybe, but uh, during the movie, I, you know, I was feeling like resentment towards the male character. And then afterwards, and I was, you know, when I was watching it anyway, I was thinking, oh, like, is this how I should be feeling watching it? I don't know. And like, am I too, I don't know. I, I, maybe I was expecting something more and, you know, you'll know when you watch it. You're always expecting more, by the way. (laughs) We could be watching the most art house, untraditional film, the film that kind of ends just at the, in what seems like the middle in the credits roll, kind of like the No Country for Old Men ending. But you always think there's this outrageous twist coming. This happens in some movies. So my brain's always thinking there. But some movies are shock movies or horror films or B movies where that stuff happens. If we're watching a <laughs> Sofia Coppola movie who's done the movie Somewhere Lost in Translation, which are largely plotless films. I like those films. We shouldn't be expecting a special twist at the end. No, and here's the thing. I... Upon reflecting and, you know, the second day, like after we watched the movie, I really started to like it a lot more because I was like, no, I think she just did a great job of getting me in the headspace that Rashida Jones was in. And I feel like 
you know, my emotions were kind of going up and down as Rashida's were in the movie. And then it left me in a kind of uneasy place. But then when I was thinking about it, it was like, yeah, that's just because it was a well-done movie. It was. And uh, Bill Murray's character was very fun. It mm-hmm. was great comic relief. Yeah, and, highly uh, suggest. I'm just like, how many more Bill Murray's do I have left? I was thinking, because he's 70 now. What do you think? Two Bill Murray's? I'm hoping. Should he- we even be talking about this? I don't know. I th- but with time, the whole relation of time, I'm starting to think about this. I'm like, I hope he's one of those actors who acts his entire life. Like, and I hope mm-hmm. he has a long life because I really do love Bill Murray, and I'd be sad to see him go. No, oh, he's so wonderful. Yeah. All right. Is this sufficient for you, or did you want us to chime in with a topic of your own? No, I got nothing. Let's get to Cheryl. Okay. Doctor Cheryl. Dr. Cheryl Ziegler. Let's do it. But but, but yeah, there's a format to this show. Sorry. But before we get to Dr. Cheryl Ziegler, we are going to tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by Bravado Designs. Bravado Designs makes the most comfortable nursing bras. And you have heard me say this so many times because it's true and I don't think I'll ever stop. You're welcome. I say that because I introduced you to Bravado. Before then, you were wearing bras that were so uncomfortable you would just throw them in the garbage after one use it's true and i couldn't properly take my boobs out of them because nothing i had was user friendly as the bravado designs bras are and i wore them for so long after i even finished nursing lucy just because they were so comfortable but now bravado designs just came out with their new everyday collection which has no clips but the same amazing comfort for your boobs that means if you're a person who never wants to have a child or wants to have a child in 10 years, you can wear the bra now. (laughs) These bras are for you. And you can get the nursing bras at bravadodesigns.com or if you head to the Canadian website, you'll have access to the everyday collection at ca.bravadodesigns.com. But regardless of which website you go to, make sure to use the promo code thisfamilytree20 for 20% off. Again, that is bravadodesigns.com or ca.bravadodesigns.com and thisfamilytree20. And we are also supported by... Hello Bello. Being a parent is hard. Like really hard. I know that. So when you go to get diapers to prevent the next eventual blowout, finding a diaper that's absorbent and soft without spending a fortune shouldn't be just as tough. And with the cutest designs known to woman or man. Known to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Co-founded by Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard, Hello Bello is built on the simple idea that all babies deserve the best, which is why they offer premium baby products at affordable prices. And their diaper bundling service lets you choose from over 20 fun different rotating designs that, you know, like they keep up with the seasons. We just got through our Christmas ones and they were so cute. And now we're just into like winter wonderland theme. The diapers are obviously the Michael Jordan of product, but their other products are amazing too. The diaper rash cream, seriously get that oh it changes lives and each bundle comes with seven packs of diapers four packs of plant-based wipes and even one full-size product freebie with your first order plus you can get 15 percent off of any add-on so the diaper rash cream like shane said the bubble bath the hair detangler wipes whatever so to get hello bello super soft super absorbent and super affordable diapers delivered right to your door go to hellobello.ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree30 for 30 percent off your diaper bundle order that is a huge bang for your buck and a lot of potential blowout saved you can say that again and i'm gonna say this website again that is hellobello.ca promo code thisfamilytree30 to start bundling with 30 percent off your first order 
Don't forget that's hellobello.ca promo code thisfamilytree30. This promo is applicable to Canadians only. But now, without further ado, let's get to our interview with Dr. Cheryl Ziegler. Cheryl, I love your wallpaper. I'm obsessed with wallpapers. It looks beautiful. People don't oh, get it Oh, thank enough. you so much. It's been so fun. I've had this office for almost eight years, but it's been so fun that I do everything on everything on video now. So everyone sees my wall and most people say, Oh, I like that. And I'm like, yeah, because this is my one little space in the house (laughs) that that I didn't have to consult. (laughs) It's very feminine. No, it's beautiful. It's really nice. And for those listening, we are on the line with Cheryl Ziegler, author of 2018's book, Mommy Burnout. Well, wait, right there. Yeah. How offended do you get when someone doesn't say doctor? And do we call you Cheryl right. Ziegler? Do we call you Dr. Cheryl Ziegler? Or do we call you Doc. Dr. Ziegler? I run into this problem dealing with doctors. Yeah, this, this is a very important issue. So what I say is you can say it one time for reference so people know that I have some sort of credential. And then after that, just call me Cheryl. Okay. So Dr. Cheryl Ziegler, author of Mommy Burnout. It is important. It is so important. And... Cheryl, this book teaches us how to, you know, take care of ourselves as mothers while raising healthy kids, healthy families. But what was the impetus for writing Mommy Burnout? So, you know, truly, I've had a private practice for almost 15 years now. And what was happening in just the beginning of it, it's called the Child and Family Therapy Center. So I'm really, I think initially was thought of more as a child therapist, but what happened was these moms were coming in and I will say moms, I'm going to just preface this right off the top. The things I talk about can apply to dads. Dads are not excluded. I love dads, big pro dad, except the, I just wrote about what I felt like I could authentically really share, which is the mom's experience. So um, I will say lots of dads call for referrals, but the moms are the ones that sort of come in and open up and that's what I started seeing this pattern. And it was, it was just such a clear pattern of, you know, is this all there is to life? Mm-hmm. I'm exhausted all the time. I thought I had it all. I thought, you know, this was going to be great. Why don't I really feel that satisfied? Um, you know, is this, I, you know, a lot of women would preface their conversations with me with like, I have a master's degree or I was a teacher. They, they need to know that they, you know, like I need to know that they were a professional, that they're intelligent, mm-hmm. that they're educated. And they're like, and now I basically just do laundry, drive kids around. And so it was like an observation. That's mm-hmm. all it really was. And then I had my first child and I, after my first didn't feel burned out, but after my second, I finally was like, oh, this is definitely what they're talking about. And for me, it was this feeling of always feeling like I was drowning underwater. Mm-hmm. That was my analogy. And I would come up for air like sometimes, and then I was right back down. Mm-hmm. And so it was the culmination of observing it uh, in other moms and then also experiencing it myself to say, I just feel like people need to know about this. And as most well, maybe not most people know, but if you don't know, writing a book takes a long time. So when I was making these observations, it was like, well, it started in the mid early two thousand, like two thousand five, two thousand six. But then when I actually started writing the book, was more like two thousand 
13. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was like, all right, I think I want to put this together. And so it took a really long time. But the reason why I'm saying that is because back then there weren't all these social media wasn't as big and there weren't all these like blogger platforms and all of these things. So what I really felt was like I was keeping a secret at mm-hmm. the time. It's not a secret anymore. But at the time, I felt like I was walking around with a secret. And I write this in the book. I say, I always felt like if my two o'clock knew how my three o'clock felt, and then the four o'clock knew that she could join them, like the world would just be a better place. And I think I was right in that. I think there is a lot to say about feeling validated, feeling not alone, knowing that Mm -hmm. millions of other moms feel the same way. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm the same as you in the sense that the first kid, it almost felt like I wasn't even a parent. It felt like this is too easy. This is a breeze. What's everyone talking about? And then the second kid, I started feeling the the burnout that you're describing. Is that a common thing where the second kid is where it really hits home that I may be overwhelmed and in over my head? You know, I thought, I just anecdotally thought that it was, but I actually have had a lot of moms say to me, I felt this after my first. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, I thought the same thing. It would take maybe multiple children, but I, and I can speak in, this is my genuine answer, more probably to the woman's experience because the first time, you know, you're still, you're pregnant for the first time. You're as a woman, you're so worried. You're so scared. You have to think about your diet. What am I drinking? Did I drink alcohol the night that we conceived? You know, like it starts right away. The answer is yes, by the way, but (laughs) (laughs) the answer is yes for many people. Um, but, and then what happens is once they're born, I think it really is and I feel like we should talk about it more. It is just a initially a different experience. The entering into parenthood for for the woman versus the man is different. And so I think because women give up their careers more, mm-hmm. they're generally the ones who stay at home more. They're generally the ones who still keep up with the housework and try to juggle the other things. They do feel burnout after first child more so than Mm-hmm. Maybe the dad would. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then by the time the second kid comes, the dad always has to be looking out for one of yeah. them. So it's like, oh, this is what it was like for yeah. the mom. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Ideally, the, that's the thing, like ideally. But then I think that especially during now, during quarantine, and I mean, Shane is working, he has a day job. And for me, I have like a, a day side hustle that I'm doing while I'm on mat leave but then I'm also watching the two kids so it's like interview prep I'm doing it while I watch two kids you know cooking dinner I'm doing it while I watch two kids and he's able to help when he can but again he's working most of the time and do you find that people you know talk about the invisible load of motherhood and do you find that partners can relate to that and can see what that is I think we're getting there. Um, One of the things that I'll say is in 2017, I did a TEDx talk called Why Moms Are Miserable. And what that really was about was, I I love to share the story because it really was such an epiphany to me. Sometimes I still can't even believe it really happened, but I I opened up the feminine mystique, you know, which was written in like 1962 by Betty Friedan. And the chapter one is called The Problem That Has No Name. And I was like, huh, what's that? And it's funny because I definitely know I read this book in undergrad for women's studies. I remember that, but like it didn't resonate with me. But all of a sudden, three kids later, I'm like, what? So I'm reading this. And then she basically is talking about the same issues we're still talking about in 2021. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't believe it. She was talking about that. 
you know, it was maybe obviously looked a little more traditional back then, but the feelings were exactly the same. They were, is this all there is to life? Do I get to complain? Really on the outside, I look like I have, everything's all put together. They would go to the doctor and the doctor would call them hysterical and give them value. And that was mommy's little helper. That little yellow pill that people refer to was mommy's little helper. So I do feel like this is a really, you know, we're talking at least 60, 70 years Mm -hmm. of women feeling um, not fully understood by their partners. I think things are getting better, but still the pandemic revealed that we are long, long away from having arrived because the pandemic revealed it was women by the millions who had to leave the workforce. It was women who figured out how to do the technology and balancing their work. And I know, of course, this isn't a full blanket statement, but the numbers are extremely clear. Women yeah. had to leave the workforce at four times the rate of men. That, that says it enough right there. Mm-hmm. Well, there's 140,000 in December alone female jobs lost in the U.S. That's huge. And then there were 16,000 jobs added to the workforce, but given to men. And I got those stats from CNN. I haven't fact-checked them, but I'm assuming that they are correct. And that's huge. And one other thing that I, I want to touch on, because you think of the, what is it called? The the problem that has no name. Yes. And, you know, husbands only starting now to kind of relate and see what that is. But I think about the women that came before us and our mothers. They don't talk to us about this. Like I wrote a piece uh, for a mother magazine on postpartum and what I experienced in the fourth trimester and how it's hard to kind of find yourself again, how it can be lonely, isolating. And my mom couldn't even get through it because she's like, oh, it's too depressing. Well, no shit. It's depressing. That's Mm -hmm you know, that's, it is depressing. I'm sorry. Like, how come they don't communicate this to us? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. Um, I have a couple of thoughts that came to my head. So when I actually did the TEDx talk, there were a couple of cool things. First of all, um, a couple of my best friends came and they brought their moms. And, you know, when I was done, that's all we talked about. We went to lunch afterwards and that's all we talked about. And they said, we didn't talk about these things then. And when I was done and I came off the stage, a couple of women, only older women, like women in their 60s, came up to me and said, I can't even tell you like how much that would have helped me at the time. And they basically were just saying, this was happening. We just didn't talk about Mm -hmm. it. And what happens now, super interestingly, especially with the book Mommy Burnout, is I do get a lot of grandmothers. Even yesterday, I I was talking to a woman in her 60s and she said, I'm going to read your book because I need to understand how to relate to my daughter. And, you know, they felt these things. But A, you know how, I mean, how old are your kids again? Uh, Two and a half and six months two and a half and six months, you're still very, very in it. There's going to be a day, like not even that far off, two, three years from now, where you're going to forget sort of some of the sleepless nights, the complete total exhaustion. I can't wait. You're going to remember it intellectually. (laughs) But right now, like you're really, really in it. But can you imagine one day, just like all of our memories, we're not always going to be so deep into it where we're going to remember. And we might go, oh, yeah, that was a thing. When I was a mom, we were starting to talk about the invisible workload. Eh, and dads were starting to get, you know, we're going to have a high level. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it is that, A, women didn't talk about it. So even though they felt that they didn't talk about it, and right now I have an entire chapter of Mommy Burnout that is just about accepting help from your mother and mother-in-law. <laughs> and um, because that I, all I did was just create chapters that were truly based on strong themes that I saw. And that's one of them. It's like 
you know, not only the chapter about the dad can be, he doesn't get it, but then the chapter about the mothers or mother-in-laws is like, I know she's just trying to help, but basically she's driving me crazy. Right. And so I have found though, that sometimes older, the, the mothers, the grandmothers are responding to this, these kind of writings because they're sort of like, I didn't have a voice for it. So I kind of don't know how to talk about it, right. but they are so worried about, let's say you, they're so worried about their daughters. I will tell you that I even have sometimes people just leave me voicemails and say, I know you're seeing my daughter and <laughs> I want to tell you how worried I am about yeah. her. And they'll sometimes just say, thank you so much for just being there for her. Mm -hmm. So they don't always know how to show up for us, but I think they really do acknowledge. They also that, you know, it's, it's tough, but they also, I think there's a little bit of judgment as to yeah. you're, we're doing this to ourselves. Right. And so I always think there's some fairness in, and some of that judgment, mm -hmm. you know, they're like, you know, we, and I do think that women have taken on not the, oh, I can do either, or it's both. And, yeah, and that is what is causing us depression yeah. and anxiety at record levels. Mm -hmm. How do you know if what you're going through is burnout or if you're just having a string of bad days or is there a difference? Yeah, there is a difference. So I really, uh, took the last couple of years to really, really study stress and then chronic stress mm. and then burnout. It's a, it's a continuum. And I will say chronic stress, what chronic stress is, the difference is it's the, the chronic, so the ongoing physical and emotional exhaustion that leads to pessimism or the thought that you are no longer good at your job. So that's the difference. You know, you have stressed out days, but you don't go, you know, I kind of really do suck as a mom. I, I don't even know if I was meant to do this and I'm totally ineffective. I don't know what I'm doing. That's more burnout. Stress is just like today was really tough or this week was really tough, but you don't necessarily think that parenthood, it was a terrible idea or you've made a mistake mm -hmm. or you have no right to be parenting. That's mm -hmm. sort of an easy mm -hmm. differential. See, because for me, sometimes I think, oh, I'm a I'm good dad, but I have this irrational thought like, oh, I'm never truly going to have fun again. So it's like a combination of the two. W when I'm in that mode of thinking, oh, this will never end, I'm not going to have any fun again, but at least I'm a good dad. Is that still burnout? It depends on the length of time. Like if those are fleeting right, yeah. and occasional thoughts, you it know, is, yeah. then it's just stress. And okay. you could even say it's maybe chronic stress. You could say, well, I kind of have the thought a couple of days a week, but a couple of the other days mm -hmm. a week, I, I know that that's not true. Like my rational brain comes back on, mm -hmm. but I will tell you, I remember, I, I don't know why I so distinctly remember I was out one day when my kids were young. I think they were like, I have three kids. I think they were five, three and one or something. And I was staring at another family, like really staring at them. And I was like, they look very rested. Yeah. How, what is their secret? Yeah. Do they just let their kids stay up? Like I was in this, I was making up a story about another family who just, you know, they looked energetic. Their kids were like a little bit older. And um, those were, those are fantasies. I mean, that's part of even one of the things I talk about is the hospital fantasy. Like, yes. right. Could you relate to that? What yes. is sorry? What is that? The hospital. I, I have that fantasy. Before you get into it, I what have that fantasy. Though? And when I saw you doing your TED talk, I was like, "Oh my gosh, she's talking about it!" And it happened to you. Alex, could you explain what the fantasy <laughs> is? I'm just, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's you know you're so exhausted, you're so overwhelmed, and you have this fantasy of being kind of locked up 
in a hospital, you know, not not with anything too bad, but with people taking care of you, with no kids to watch, with Uh. eight full hours of sleep, food being served to you, nothing to do. And you you went through that. You lived that. Right. (laughs) I did. I did. And that's it's Shane. This is so real that they're like, if you Google hospital fantasy, you'll see like, you know, maybe like HuffPost or something. (laughs) You'll see these like eight out of 10 women say, and it's hysterical because there's a list of things that they're willing to endure. So it's not like life altering or too bad, (laughs) but it's bad enough where you have to stay in the hospital. Like they're like, a minor car accident where like I tweaked my neck enough that they need to watch me or pneumonia where like I'm going to recover, but I definitely need to be under observation. Ah, Um, And so I talked about my hospital fantasy and then it actually like as it was coming true. So like I had, I tell a story about I was in massive pain and I go to the hospital and it was Sunday night and I'm a huge football fan. And so I was like, I was laying in bed and those nurses came and put the heated blankets Ooh. on me and I was watching football and it was six o'clock. So I was thinking right now, my husband's cleaning up from dinner. The dishes are piled up. He's still got to do baths and bed. And like, they were pretty young. And, you know, and then of course the, the thought goes away, but I also just also had though surgery in November and it was one of those surgeries where the surgeon said, um, you know, you'll probably stay one night, but if things go really well, I mean, I think most people want to go home and they're like, you know, you could go home. So I, her and I are really close. So I was like, you know, I don't want to go home. Like I, and this is still, this was just <laughs> yeah. like two months ago. I'm like, I don't want to go home. So I wake up and this nurse in the, in like in the recovery room says to me, hi, everything went really well. If you'd like to, you can go home today. And I was like, no, 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 no. You have to call my doctor. My doctor knows I'm definitely not going home today. So I still have that. I still have the feeling of like, it was, you know, I was there for a day and a half. Like I was there one night. It was kind of nice. It's a little bit like the movie. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Phantom Thread, where Mm, the woman is purposely poisons her husband with mushrooms because when he's sick, he's a lot kinder. And and he becomes to like it. It's an interesting film. It's by P.T. Anderson. <laughs> but uh, moving on, I wanted to ask about your book. Which chapter do you tend to hear the most about that women are like, that chapter changed my life or really Ooh, resonated? That's, that's a great question. Um, I'm looking because I want to make sure. I would say, well, I know I'm not I'm being annoying. I'm going to give you two answers. Probably the what the hell am I doing with my life? Mm-hmm. And that's about the working mom's <laughs> dilemma. And didn't I used to have friends mm. about the lack of friendship, um, especially like for you right now, Alex, like I don't know if it feels that way to you, but this can be a very isolating time yeah. where you're just sort of like hunkered down. And well, of course, right now we're in a pandemic and it can be a very lonely time and the, the, care, the caretaking just doesn't end. Mm-hmm. So I would say those are the those are the two that I hear the most about. Yeah. yeah. Alex it, has said to me several times, like, she doesn't know if she really has friends. Yeah, like, I do. Yeah. And I talk to them every day. Like, I'm in different text groups with them and things like that. But it's like, you know, you made a point and it kind of, it made me emotional. I'm going to get emotional right now even just kind of thinking about it. But when you were in the hospital that one time, you know, your first time that you're talking about in your TED talk, you were there and you started to get lonely and feel isolation because you were like, if I was going to call anybody just because they'd care that I was in the hospital, who would mm-hmm. I call? 
and like i'm sure my friends would care but like i don't think they'd care enough for like me to be like hey just let you know i'm here i'm fine i don't want anything but i'm in the hospital because i'm mm-hmm. sick or whatever and that's hard like that's a hard realization you could and, give me a call though well yeah. I, I would answer if i wasn't too busy <laughs> i'd assume you would know <laughs> but uh yeah that was that's difficult Mm -hmm. and you know now i think women are feeling isolation tenfold because of covid and it's like i talk all the time i was so excited to be on mat leave again because i had a great time the first time i met really great women we did stuff every day our kids were socialized and now it's like not only do i not have those connections with other you know moms who have newborns but my own friends everybody's busy with their own stuff And it's so hard, even if you care about somebody else very much, it's so hard to actually bear witness to their lives, as you said. And I think that's important for women because like Shane bears witness to my life, but who bears witness to maybe the struggles I'm having with him or something like that because I'm not really talking about it with anybody else. So that's difficult. It is so difficult. So Shane, what, what Alex is alluding to is what I talk about eventually my TED talk. I go from a hospital fantasy thing, but, but then it turns like more serious where I start saying what, I, what happened to me was I was laying there and I was thinking exactly what Alex said. I don't need anybody to do anything. So who could I call right now to, that would care for me to just say, hey, I'm in the hospital. They're running some tests. I've been in an exquisite amount of pain for three days. They don't know what it is yet. I'm okay. I just knew you'd want to know. And like the truth was I didn't have anybody in Denver that I felt, even though just like Alex, yes, I had play groups. I had mom friends. Our social calendar was overbooked, you know, but who would care? Now I had the second category of the moms I could call to say, could you drive my kid to school tomorrow because I'm in the hospital? Could I had that category, but I didn't, There wasn't anybody who I felt comfortable with. And for me, I don't know if you guys moved or not, but I'm originally from New York and I live in Colorado. So I do still have like my childhood friends, Mm -hmm. but they're in New York and I did text them and tell them, but I just thought this is a really sad place to be. And Mm -hmm. I, it was like a turning point for me. Like I want to change this. And as soon as I shared that story, I mean, truly the, It was interesting, like the international nature of how people responded to that shocked me. Yeah. Um, I kind of thought for some reason it was like, you know, an an American thing or at least a North American thing, you know, but it isn't. There are women from Iraq and Afghanistan and India saying me too, me too, me too. So Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. How do you go about changing that? I I would think if I was starting to be like, guys, come on, can someone care about me? They'd be like, Shane's a little needy and it might push them away more. How do you endear yourself to get the kinds of reaction that make you feel loved? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I did and I've had a lot of the women that I work with do is one of the things I used to do is like really categorize my friends you know, I thought these are only my, you know, playgroup friends. These are only my mom friends. And I just stopped doing that mm-hmm. as much really. And, or sometimes I'd even say, oh, they're my neighbor friend. It's like, I had these categories of people. Yeah. Work friend. Yeah. yeah. Yes. School friend. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And we all know what that implies. There's some distance. Neighbor friend means we're friends by convenience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that's yeah. cool. That's great. You have great neighbors. But like, if I were to move, would I stay in touch with them? You know? And so instead of categorizing friends. I just think of people as friends, period. 
And that helps immediately, even for me with the level of intimacy. I also have really made an effort to stay connected with women that I care about because mm -hmm. I did have then still have now some really amazing women in my life that I've met now when I'm a little older or kids, you know, are in elementary school. Yeah. And I got over the fact that they might not know every single solitary thing about me, but from this point forward, we can become really close friends. Mm -hmm. I think I used to also have that, like, oh, they don't know my whole story. They don't know like all these things about me. So I think I was putting up some barriers in a way. And I just don't do that anymore. Like I have a friend now I consider very close and there's lots of things she doesn't know about me. If I said to her, what's the name of the hometown I grew up in? She wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, why does that matter? Yeah. And if it ever matters, I'll just tell her, you yeah. know? And so for me, there's been a mental shift, which has allowed a lot more intimacy and vulnerability for me um, to even reach out. Like this year for my birthday um, is next month. And so it's, you know, a little unusual time. So what I'm going to do is something different. I'm going to send them probably pretty soon and in the next week or so I've already written in my head. I'm going to send out like an email to a couple of friends, but just not a group one individual. And I'm going to say for my birthday, my, I would, I want to give myself is the gift of like bringing you to lunch for an hour. Oh, nice. You know, like I'm trying to make sure that I keep up. I know the, I know the value of friendship now yeah. to a pretty, you know, like intimate degree. That's so cool. Cause yeah. often I'm, I was thinking the way you were, which is, Oh, my friends from high school. Those are my real friends who I've maintained this long relationship. But in a lot of ways, I'm me more now in the last yeah. five years than I was in the 30 years before that. So yeah. the people who know me now, oddly, probably know me best. Yes. But yeah, just to pivot away from... Mommy burnout. Mommy burnout. My brain's uh, burnt out right now. <laughs> but I wanted to talk about uh, your podcast because you also mm -hmm. have a podcast. And of course, that name's escaping me now. It's, it's called Dr. Cheryl and the Pod Couch. What's going uh, on? Dr. My... Cheryl's pod couch. Dr. Cheryl's pod couch. Now, yeah. I always put doctors on a pedestal. I assume no matter what their specialty is, they know everything about everything. They're just so smart. But you have <laughs> you have a lot of guests on your show. And what is something that you've learned? or What are some of the most important things you've learned throughout having your podcast? You know what? Having my podcast is, I don't know how you guys, what your podcast story is, but mine is, it was New Year's Day two new years ago. So I guess it's two years ago. And, um, and my agent called me and she was like, okay, so, um, <laughs> for this year, you're going to need to start a podcast. And I was like, uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm definitely, I don't have time for that. She's like, no, no, that's, that's what you're, you're going to need to do. You can figure it out. Don't worry about it. Just figure it out. And so initially I was like, oh my gosh, one more thing to do. So what I decided though, in which it really has been, and I hope you guys have this too, is it's been an awesome opportunity to get to have conversations with what I consider thought leaders, a lot of authors mm -hmm. on just topics that are interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I have, there's no rules. I love it, right? There's nobody, I have to run anything past. It's just sort of like, oh, you know, I don't feel like talking about fitness. I feel like talking about racial inequity. I feel like talking about trauma. I feel mm -hmm. like talking about postpartum depression. That was a really uh, good one. And it's really, so for me, it's been a great opportunity. Like, I think, you know, like you were saying, people who know you in the last five years know you best. If you want to know what's, what's interesting to me, what's in my brain, you could just literally look at the topics on my <laughs> podcast because that's what it is. There's no agenda. There's no nothing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, have some sponsorships. 
that's great. But uh, really what I'm talking about are things that are I'm thinking about, that I'm interested in, that I want to know more about. So I have loved it. I mean, my, probably my dream, one of my, it, this is like a little, you know, dorking out in my field, but in the field of trauma and psychology and child development, there are just a couple of the huge thought mm-hmm. leaders, international, and one of them is Bruce Perry. And I have truly been like a follower of his for 20 something years. And I got to interview him right after all the George Floyd stuff happened here in America and talk to him about basically the, the neurobiology of bias and racism. So, you know, I know it, it was, but for me, a dream come true, right? That's somebody that I truly look up to and have learned so much from. So just to have opportunities like that, it's been awesome. Mm-hmm. No, it, it is incredible. And, you know, as the year, so much has been happening in this year and how we live and how we perceive things in politics. And it is really amazing to, you know, use that as a foundation for conversations with people. And you did mention racial inequity. And I want to ask, like, when you are, you know, helping your clients, things like that, what inequities do you see when moms come in? Because, you know, you think about the large portions of the population who can afford therapy and they're going to be wealthier, they're going to be white. What are the main differences that you see in mothers of different races? Oh, yeah, it's huge. I mean, one thing about a podcast is people are going to be hearing this, maybe not seeing me, but I am uh, Puerto Rican and Cuban. I have brown skin. I am a first generation from an immigrant family from Cuba. And so I, it's very interesting. I'm, let me just say something about this. I just like triggered it. So I'm, and I married somebody who's blonde hair and blue eyes and German. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, have obviously like mixed race kids. And so, well, A, I like to joke. It's such a great time to be brown. I don't feel (laughs) white or black, (laughs) brown. Um, But, you know, one of the things that is interesting for me is I grew up in many stages, but when I, my mom was born to a teenage mom, we were on welfare and food stamps. So I have been truly by definition poor mm-hmm. um, in the system. You know, I know what foods, at least in the 1970s, I know what food stamps looked like and then went to, you know, middle class and, you know, have moved probably to upper middle class. And so I have experienced all of that, which is very unique. But in my practice, just like you said, I only see white people and Mm -hmm. I only see people of privilege because it is true. I don't accept insurance because our insurance system is so poor, so terrible in in this country that I couldn't make a living. I couldn't do it. And it's not a fit for me in other, other Mm -hmm. ways as well. I think giving away mental health information that, you know, could potentially be detrimental, you know, for people down the road with insurance is not a great plan. So it's very interesting. So when you start off, usually in graduate programs in psychology, you always work with the absolute toughest populations. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a great experience to, I've had years and years of that experience. And then now I have, I have a real expertise in families of privilege and wealth. Mm -hmm. And it is an expertise because Honestly, obviously their struggles and the things that are on their mind are, are different than when you don't know where like the next paycheck is coming from or how you're going to put food on the table, but they stress too. Mm-hmm. And they, I will say, I feel like most of the families that I work with, what's on their mind, ra- racial inequities are, especially the last couple of years, a little bit of guilt about having what they have. 
And basically, to put it bluntly, they're always like, how do I not raise a little asshole? How do I, you know, how do I do that? And so many people, this is the other thing I feel about, you know, people of wealth Mm -hmm. is you just make a lot of assumptions about them. So many of them have stories like me. Mm-hmm. So many of them say, I didn't have anything when I grew up. I've worked my ass off. Like yeah. nobody would know that, you know, so we make assumptions. It's funny to be talking about defending wealth, but in we, we need to understand everything. And I feel like we need to understand that a lot of the people that I work with are really trying to figure out how to raise kind, mm-hmm. thoughtful, community oriented, open-minded children. Yeah. And that, you know, it's our, it's our struggle and what we deal with, but yeah, the, the issues that they have, I would say, you know, the white privilege piece is probably most, um, on top of people's minds, Mm -hmm. um, and how to rectify being white and slash being privileged right now. And so I actually have some thoughts around, you know, there's, there's some, there is some truth to that institutional racism, but I also think the more we keep talking about it in that way, we're also putting in further divides. So it's not my favorite way to talk about racial inequities. I actually really do think it comes down to more so socioeconomic status inequities. That's to me much more the issue, putting systemic racism aside in general, I think it's much more about who has what, who lives in what area code and why and and education. Mm -hmm. How do we get everybody equally educated? That was one of my tickets. Mm success is education and that is so hard and i think about in the states like in canada it's getting more expensive every single year it's hell but in the states your tuition is like three four five times as much as ours is so how do you expect you know a population to become enlightened parents educated parents and then raise the next educated generation and that is so tough so how how do you you know direct parents who are wanting to do that but may not have the means like when you were in school and working with these kinds of families. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that because as you said that, I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't say something about my, um, the podcast that was important to me as I was starting it off, which was, I want to, I want to still level the playing field and, and anybody can listen to a podcast and it doesn't cost anything. And that anybody can get educated in information Mm -hmm. as they want, you know? So sometimes I balk at like when people say, oh, there, you know, there's no playbook on how to raise kids. There's really a lot of resources now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of parenting resources, child development. I don't think by any means that these answers are easy and I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I know that education is the key to this. Mm -hmm. I know that you know, a young single mom, I know a woman who just immigrated from Africa, whatever it might be, somebody who's been in generations of poverty, abuse, neglect, or foster care, any of those systems. One of the keys to this is is getting them educated. And here, one of the things that I think is really interesting, like a good debate, I don't have a strong, I, I have a position, but I could be swayed, but we have school choice here. So now let's not even talk about college. Forget college. What about the foundational years? Mm-hmm. So let's start off with even preschool. Here, they've been trying to offer, um, meaning in Denver, Colorado, they've been trying to offer preschool, try to get every kid the ability to go to preschool. Right. Well, we see that outcomes are so much stronger when everybody can go to preschool. I didn't go to preschool. I started in kindergarten. So that's you know one thing, trying to get preschool for all. But then when you look at the elementary ages, those years are very, very important and there's school choice here. And I think it's interesting because it's like you kind of it's in theory supposed to equal playing field, right? right? If you want to send your kid across town because maybe your home school isn't that great. 
but it, it actually, for some reason, doesn't really wind up being that way. There's like a couple of choice kids that get into the mm-hmm. best of the schools and that's good for the couple of kids, but it's not taking care of an entire system mm-hmm. because they still have to figure out how to get there. There's no busing. So if, it's like big sacrifices you make yeah. to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. When you first wrote Mommy Burnout, I'm sure you didn't anticipate a pandemic happening just two years later. And I'm sure the book has grown in popularity in this last year alone. But if you were to rewrite the book and you were to do a chapter on how to cope with a pandemic and all this domestic terrorism Mm -hmm. and everything going on right now, like what would you say in that chapter? Well, interestingly, I'm working on a second book. Oh, oh nice. So, and what it's, a, what it's really about, where my mind is at, this is um, really something new, something new even that I'm talking about out loud, is we've, we're not going to just get out of this pandemic and life is not going to go back to normal. And I think we're all going to struggle more than we know with the transition, right. right? So it was almost like I've heard kids and I've heard adults say, who are my friends going to be when I'm done with this? Mm-hmm. Like, who did I invest time in during the last year to stay in touch with? I've actually had also people say to me, I've enjoyed the pandemic because I have taken 90% of the crap in my life that I didn't need out. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there's all this response to it. So I'm focused on two things, transitions. How do we do transitions and post-traumatic growth? Mm. How do we truly grow from this experience not resiliency is different i'll probably talk a little about resiliency but resiliency is more is simply put is just it's your ability to bounce back right after mm-hmm. a challenging time right resiliency so that's important and we talk a ton about that but post-traumatic growth is is a different construct that's more like did this pandemic shake you to your core change your world view and who do you want to be because of that Mm -hmm. And so that's the difference. Resiliency doesn't mean that something had to shake me to my core. Right. You know, it's just sort of like uh, I was I was fired from a job. Um, Wow. Didn't see that coming. How am I going to get back? Oh, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, oh, what a great story. She started doing this, which was her real passion. Mm -hmm. That's great. Post-traumatic growth says my actual worldview, what I thought was possible and not possible. And if you think about 2020, the amount of things that maybe we never really thought were going to happen or that we now know we're very vulnerable to domestic terrorism. We've always been worried about international terrorism. Mm -hmm. Now it's domestic. And so how is that going to change my worldview? That's what I'm really, really focused on. Mm -hmm. And in terms of talking to children, like for like, how did you talk to your children? If you know, we're scared of domestic terrorism now, if a child comes to you scared about it, how do you explain that or, or talk them down from it? Yeah. I mean, I have had those conversations in the last week. Um, my kids are, my son's going to be eight on Friday and then I have a 10 and a 13 year old. And so I, not the eight year old as much, but the 10 and the 13 year old, we have talked about, interestingly, I started off with what is the definition of terrorism? And, you know, it was good for me to even take a step back Mm -hmm. there the psychology of terrorism, and there is a sector of psychology that focuses on terrorism and violence. It's just the threat. It's sometimes not even the act, right? It's just the threat that a group can instill on you that makes you feel like at any moment and at any corner, something bad could happen. And it may never happen, but just the simple looming threat of it is what keeps us in a state of fear. 
So the way I talk to my kids and lots of other clients, tweens and teens that I work with, is really first defining for them what terrorism is and that our country right now is under this collective trauma. We are collectively experiencing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I always say we're in the same storm in different boats. I don't think we're in the same boat. It's not all exactly experienced the same, but I always focus on this. When there's a problem, let's go to the solutions, right? So yeah, we, we have an opportunity to talk about how we feel about it. Some of the images they saw, you know, the police officer, you know, dying. We've talked about that yesterday. I, I just had found out that another police officer committed suicide. That was involved? Um, that, that, that was, was involved. So they're considering that another death. So it, interestingly, so we talk about that, but then what I essentially say to them is we have to do whatever it is that we can do at our level. That might be in your school government, right? Mm -hmm. That might be in our, just our neighborhood. What can we do? And so they'll say, okay, well, what can we do? And I'll say, the first thing we have to learn how to start doing is having really difficult conversations where nobody storms out of the room. Yeah. Like you got to be able to sit at the table and talk about tough conversations, tough topics that there's no perfect right and wrong. There's, it's mostly gray and talk them through. And then I always say, when you find yourself, like if you and I, Alex, we're just debating something right now, and I just really disagreeing with your point, as opposed to me feeling like I'm going to force my point, point of view down, yeah. I just, I tell them, I want you to flip a switch in your head and just start asking questions. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Or when you say that, it makes me think this, is that what you meant? You know? And so I think those are kind of the basic communication community skills that our kids need to have. And that's what I do with them. I just put them into action because if we wallow too much in our fear, we know that we're not going to be making great decisions. Mm -hmm. We're going to shut down. We're going to fight, flight, or freeze mm -hmm. in fear. So I don't want that for them. I mean, we can acknowledge there's some fear. I've, I've said to my kids, we're four miles from our capital. We're not going to be going down, you know, downtown anytime in the next yeah. week or so. You know, I just try and I talk like that, like, pretty moderate. Like no. we're not going to be going down there. We're not, I'm not, we're not doing protests. I think we've lost our sense of what peaceful protesting could mean. Yeah. We're not going to do that, but here's what we are going to do. And that's how I get them through it. Okay, Cheryl, we're just going to take a quick break to let our audience know that we are supported by my breast friend. My breast friend is the number one choice of nursing pillow for millions of parents around the world who nurse their babies. And breast is spelled B-R-E-S-T, as I'm sure a lot of you knew. <laughs> you got that. And for more than 25 years, my breast friend's patented wraparound design has supported people in over 40 countries and thousands of birthing hospitals that support successful nursing. And for several hours, it has supported me. It has, because you fed the baby a couple bottles. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't say hours, uh, <laughs> dozens of minutes. But were those not the most comfortable dozens of minutes you've had? Yeah. It's the Mercedes-Benz of nursing pillows, and lactation consultants around the world credit the pillow for helping parents achieve longer and more comfortable feeding cycles than they thought possible. I can stand behind this because I was one of those parents when I first gave birth to Lucy. It's simply the best, most supportive choice for successful breastfeeding. You can purchase My Breast Friend online at buybuybaby.com, target.com, walmart.com, babylist.com, and amazon.com. But we are also supported by... Seedlip the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Crafted without sugar, alcohol, or calories, Seedlip Spirit solved the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, the month, or forever. And you know what? I have an apology, and I'm going to do it right here in the middle of the Seedlip read. Ooh. This is actually a great drink. Oh! 
The drink you made at the beginning of this episode, you put way too much soda in it, but then you went and rejigged it, came back with the right amount of syrup, and it is delicious, especially when you get to the bottom. Thank you. That made me so happy. Like, my heart is so warm. My smile is so big right now. But yeah, as a non-drinker, it never feels good when your only options are like water or sugary mocktails. So with Seedlip, you can skip the booze without feeling left out, and you can make really beautiful, sophisticated cocktails like we had tonight, which turned out to be a hit. And it's so much fun to discover what goes with what variant and it's enriched our lives more than i could have ever thought yeah so seed lip comes in three variants you have spice 94 garden 108 and grow 42 they're all alcohol free and have their own unique flavors they pair so perfectly with just a splash of tonic but can also be used as we said to make more complex cocktails like the ones that you'll find in the seed lip cocktail book or on their instagram account at seedlip underscore na so head over to seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree10 for 10% off of your favorite non-alcoholic spirit. This is available in the U.S. and Canada. And again, that is seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and thisfamilytree10. But now let's get back to our interview with Cheryl. In times like this, we tend to be looking at our phones because the news cycle can be addicting in a way. And phones were addicting as it was. Do you have yeah. any hard and fast rules or advice regarding looking at a screen? I do. I feel like when you're getting your media sources, you're getting that information. There's a couple of things. Number one, you need to, you, we, yes, our phones can blow up, but we get to handpick where we want alerts and information right. coming from. So I say, pick your two or three trusted sources, your top sources, and have those be the ones that you go to. And nothing more. If you feel like, hmm, I got my information from those three and for whatever reason I want more, then go to four, five, and six. But initially, you probably don't need more than three yeah. trusted sources. And of course, they shouldn't be completely aligned, yeah. but you know, three sources. The other thing I say is really be mindful of your notifications. You know, I mean, I think getting dinged every time, you know, at this point, breaking news to me, and I work so much in news, but breaking news is is pretty watered down. It used to be breaking news was really breaking news. You know, there's a fire downtown, there's a building fell, you know. Now breaking news can just be Nancy Pelosi says she's going to pursue impeachment. You know, yeah. it's like it's news, but I don't think it's breaking news. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that I say about that is to be very thoughtful about your kids. I know your kids are young, but kids are getting their primary source of news right now is from TikTok. Yeah. So when you think your kids are just being social, maybe having fun, making some fun videos, they're getting tons of information from there. So you've got to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds really basic, but honestly, there are millions of families around the yeah. world that do not talk about these things. And if your kids are of an age where they're around other kids or going to school, you do need to talk. On the way to school today, I talked to all three of my kids about they are impeaching Donald Trump for the second time today. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, well, what does that matter? He's going to be out of, out of office next <laughs> week anyway. Well, let me explain to you why it matters. You know, mm -hmm. um, I try not to get, they know how I feel about politics. I try, I don't know that I've been that great about in 2020, but I do try to be um, at least somewhat neutral or always talk mm -hmm. about the other side. Um, I think it'll get better when things calm down a little bit. I'll of go course, back to yeah. being better at that. Yeah. But I think those are some things we can do in terms of news sources because it is just too much for anybody, mm -hmm. for anybody at all to consume all of the news that yeah. is put out there. So their oh TikTok is actually more than just dancing. They, they're getting news on it? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Wow. They make, they make um, TikToks 
of what's happening. So like wow. when the, what we, it was really revealed with the George Floyd situation. Right. So they would make like TikToks, repeating ones of him saying, I can't breathe wow. and the knee on top of, yeah. you know, his neck. And then they'll have words along the screen and for kids. That's news. It's consumable. It's, it's easy. It's quick, I guess, yeah. too. Uh, yeah, they just get right to the heart of the well, matter. I think it's good in some ways that kids are taking more interest in politics because, I mean, it's so all-consuming. It's mm. in every facet of life now. But again, it is harder to filter through and say, okay, what's from you know an unbiased source? What is from a correct source? What is incorrect? And that's where it becomes muddied when it's just kids who don't know how to do research on TikTok or, you know, your great aunt, whoever on Facebook reposting some stuff she got from a QAnon site. Yeah. And it gets money there. And really that does add, again, just as a mother to young kids in the pandemic, it adds to the burnout. And there there is one more thing on burnout that I want to ask you. Like, what is a realistic baseline? Because, you know, I cry once a week. That might be considered burnout. But what what's realistic? That's a great question. So even I refer back to the book because what I did in the very, you know, chapter one, page one was sort of like get to this list of things because yes, just one or two things is not enough to say, oh, you're in burnout. But a couple of things, when you're looking at four and five different of these sort of checklist things, I'll go through them quickly. I think it gives you a clue as to yeah, I am really out of like the norm of even a new mom that has a newborn baby. So things around disturbances in sleep, right? On a chronic level, we can't tolerate that. So Mm -hmm. falling asleep, staying in sleep, insomnia, you have that relative. I have a six month old. I mean, hopefully your six month old is starting to sleep up much longer lengths, but maybe not, right? (laughs) Um, So just, you know, disturbances in sleep, lack of energy throughout the day, beating yourself up for parenting decisions. So that's that little, that negative voice in your brain, reaching for junk food or going the whole day without eating a real meal, just Mm -hmm. picking off their plates, looking forward to that glass or two or more of wine on a nightly basis. You know, you're kind of looking forward to it in the day. It's one Mm o'clock and you're like, can't wait to pour myself. People have a a time in their head where they feel like it's okay. You know, four o'clock, five o'clock. So thinking about that a lot popping painkillers. A lot of women feel a lot of pain in different Mm -hmm. spots of their body and they're just popping pills to help with it. Noticing that when you get sick, you stay sick for longer. That probably means your immune system's down. Having little to no interest in sex is a big one. You know, just avoidance of your partner, not wanting to have sex, losing that desire. Dodging friends' phone calls. This is a big one that a lot of people are like, hey, how do you know that? But it's like, I will say, you know, you'll, you, maybe you're texting with people, but you know, you could be on the floor in your closet, hysterical crying and texting sunshines and roses mm-hmm. and saying, great, I'll see you tomorrow. Like, right. But if it's somebody who knows you and you have to pick up the phone, all of a sudden I would be like, wait, Alex, what's wrong? Yeah. You know, I could hear it. But if we're, if I'm not hearing it, then we can just text whatever. I've been in the middle of my kids having meltdowns and I'm laughing because I'm replying to someone, sounds great. See you tomorrow at nine. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like everything feels like it's falling down around me, but um, I'll see you tomorrow at nine, you know? Yeah. But memory stuff, when you feel like you can't remember that everybody jokes once, you know, oh my gosh, where are my car keys? Where's this? But you know, I'm speaking to you if you're like, yeah, I've been kind of concerned about my memory lately. I'm really, I'm putting the phone in the pantry. I'm putting the cheese in a closet, you know, Mm -hmm. like people doing things like that over and over. Irritability, yelling at your kids more 
forgetting appointments, double booking yourself. That's me. That's probably why I put that in there. Um, and you know, and I say once in a while, just sitting alone and crying because you feel so overwhelmed and in general feeling exhausted all the time. I might be burnt out. I think I'm, I think I'm burnt out. And you know, I know there are remedy that, you know, that's something Shane and I will have to figure out when we started today, even me sleeping in a little bit longer in the mornings. That's step one, I think. And I think that's yes. going to help a lot. And, you know, when you consider... Well, you had a lot to drink last night. So no. I'm, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm up all night. The baby's waking up every hour and a half. It's hell. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you consider burnout. You consider how moms and their partners are dealing with it. How would you like the paradigm of motherhood to change as we go forward? Well, I love that question in really multiple ways. One of them is I want moms to, and really, and dads, I want parents to stop for a moment, right? And I mean, it's a moment. And just think to yourself, what is the legacy of parenthood that I want to leave behind? Mm -hmm. When my kids are my age and they're reflecting on their childhood and they're reflecting on their birthdays or, you know, homework time or the holidays, what do I want them to remember? When I ask women that question, a lot of times there's tears and they'll say, I can't even imagine what my kids would say. Um, and I'll say, would you want to have had the childhood that your child is currently having? And a lot of times people will say, it's mixed. I mean, I know everything that I'm giving my kids. I know the opportunities they have. And sometimes they'll say, I didn't have those. But no, I think they think of me as crazy, as running around all the time, as irritable, snappy, and essentially just never really, just having a hard time being present, just present. And I know for me that I could easily fall into that trap too. So one of, I probably, if I had like one message I would give to parents is think about the legacy question. Think about, would you want this childhood, whatever it is you're creating for your children, and third to that, how can you be more present? That is the single greatest thing that you can do for your situation. In presence, when mindfulness, right? If you sat down, if you wrote some things down, even for you, Alex, at, you can get to the point where you say to your partner, I need an extra hour of sleep. You can get there by two or more ways, but two main ways, feeling burned out and having an emotional breakdown and saying, oh my gosh, I'm up every hour and a half and I can't take this anymore, <laughs> right? You can go about it that way, which is, probably how you, somewhat you got there, right? You just, you're at your breaking point. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, I'm going to take five minutes for myself every day to check in. And that gets into a little self-care. I mean, five minutes of quiet can be your self-care for the day and say, what do I need today? What do I need to be grateful for today? What do I need to thank Shane for doing today? Mm. What do I need, you know, to be the best mom that I can be? And that's where we get into the, you know, the other layers that I would say for moms, which is asking for help and taking self-care very seriously, modeling that, doing it regularly. And I, you know, what I say to people's, of course, I'm not perfect with self-care or even managing my stress, but I'm really aware of the signs quickly. So I might start slipping there and it's just like a, a halt. And I will say the words, I'm starting to feel burned out or I... I'm really overwhelmed right now and I need blank. Mm -hmm. it, it could be, you could say, I need to vent. Yeah. Or you could say, and I need blank, but I need even time to think. Sometimes I say that, I need time to think. I'd like to go upstairs to the room 
nobody come in. I just need like 20 minutes to like think. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what I would say. Those would be really kind of my words of wisdom from professional and personal experience. Mm -hmm. My last question related to that is, and in mommy culture, I find this so huge, is women will say, whether they're kidding or not, and in some cases it's true, I need a glass of wine, it's mm -hmm. wine o'clock. When does, is that actually helpful or therapeutic? And when does it become a problem? And what are signs to recognize that? Yeah, I think it's a really good point because I, before the book came out and people kind of knew what it was about, I said, this isn't, this isn't a book, like I'm not joking around about motherhood. There's so much, um, I think, minimizing and sort of joking and masking that's going on in motherhood. But I don't really laugh about things like that. I mean, you know, alcohol consumption's up 300% this past year. Clearly people are relying on alcohol to deal with stress. Yeah. And I think that it's one of the things is looking at dependence. So, okay, we're not going to go to the extreme of someone's become maybe an alcoholic, but are you dependent? Meaning, do you depend on that glass or two of wine each night to just get you through the night? Like you feel like, oh my God, the night would be intolerable. Mm -hmm. What are you even talking about? If I didn't have my glass or two of, of wine a night, I, I would be a monster. My kids would be intolerable. My husband would want to leave me. So I think there, that's the difference, right? I think when you are just having a glass of wine to kind of, yeah, there's a little unwinding. It helps you. It's a depressant. It helps you relax mm -hmm. a little bit. And you maybe want to talk to your partner. You just want to be alone. I think that's different than saying, I almost can't tolerate my family or my household unless I have this. I think that's like an easy line to draw. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that is so important because you do see it and, you know, you see the jokes they're more prevalent than ever, especially now, and it is hard. But Dr. Cheryl, you are incredible. And oh, I have so you. enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being so open, so candid, and sharing so much of your knowledge with us. Like, you, I would love to have you back on in the future when your next book is out and we can talk again. But where can people find you? Where can they find Mommy Burnett? And where can they find your podcast? Awesome. They can find my podcast anywhere that you find podcasts, iTunes and, and on there. It's just Dr. Cheryl's Podcouch. And I just do, I do it by season and I release two a month. So again, I keep my realistic, my expectations realistic. <laughs> so that's where you can find that. I think one of the other things that parents might enjoy is I do just a newsletter again, just two times a month. It's called Notes from the Couch. And I just share with people truly what's happening in my practice. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually very time related to what's happening also in our culture. And just, you know, so it's a, usually a five minute read and it just gives you some tips. Here's five tips to deal with anxiety. Here's five ways to talk to your kids about racial inequity, those kind of things. So you can just go to my website, drcherylziegler.com. Okay. And Mommy Burnout can be found anywhere where books are sold. And then the last thing I would say is I, during the pandemic, I took the opportunity to there's a class that I've taught in person since 2013, and it's a mother-daughter class on preparing them for puberty and middle school, wow. the physical, social, and emotional changes. I love that class. So I recorded it as an online class. So you can also go on my website and find it under classes. And I think for anybody who has sort of a daughter from 9 to 12, 9, 10 to 13, it's a really lovely, lovely class. That's amazing. I, yeah. And do, do you do any sessions with clients uh, virtually these days? or? I, so I do in the state of Colorado. That's where, so 
that's where I have my license to actually okay. practice. Oh. So what happens is sometimes women are like, I just want to do a consult or I just want to pick your brain. So that's different. Right. And so, yes, I definitely, you know, people can just reach me. I, I want to be very accessible. You can reach me at hello at drcherylziegler.com. And in any way, I'm really, I'm really here to just support other moms on our collective journey. That's amazing. And dads. Nice. People okay. I was going like, to say, are dads exempt? Oh, but okay. That's good to no, know. Dads are not <laughs> exempt. I just really know the plight of a woman so so much better, but there are men doing great things. I'm actually going to have a, a dad, a, like a, a dad who's all about being a dad on my podcast. This oh, is very awesome. cool. That's awesome. Yeah. But Dr. Cheryl, again, thank you so, so much for sharing everything. Beautiful wallpaper. And we hope you have a great <laughs> rest of your week. Thank you. You guys too. Thanks for all having right. me on. Take Bye, care. Bye, Cheryl. Okay. That was Dr. Cheryl Ziegler. She was so fantastic. She was so well-spoken. It's like you could ask her any question. Nothing stumps her. She doesn't even... Wasn't her first rodeo, for sure. No, no. She's such a pro. And just so chock full of, like, just amazing information. I found everything she said to be so helpful in, you know, in whatever way. Yeah, 100%. It was probably the easiest edit for me yeah because she's so fluid i wasn't like oh i gotta take an um out here or this is a awkward vocal tick which everybody has like you and me included she's a ted talk presenter we need more ted talk presenters on the podcast we've had a few but yeah still when it's a free-flowing conversation sometimes your natural vocal ticks come mm -hmm. out which she doesn't seem to really have any uh but moving on let's get to the segment that everyone's beginning to talk about uh, because Alex is starting to actually research listener questions. We used to do the segment before where we would be stumped almost every episode and then we said, no, we're going to up the ante. We're actually going to research the questions that are asked, the listener questions. Actually, Alex is going to be the one doing that. I'm going to be along for the ride. I'm very excited. You said there were some great questions. Yeah. So let's begin this mailbag segment. Right. I love the questions tonight. The first one is actually, so Shane, you don't know the questions yet, but this one, it's like a running theme a little bit and it fits in with the top of the episode. So we're, we're starting off with a banger. In previous relationships, have you and Shane cheated or been cheated on? So I will say yes. I have cheated in previous relationships and I, I don't think I've been cheated on. I mean, if I have, I don't know, but I, I truly don't think that I was. You, pr I think you pride yourself on like, no one would cheat on me. Am I no, incorrect I just, in saying that? No, I just, I don't think my previous relationships did cheat on me, which makes me feel more horrible for the cheating that I did. Yeah. I, and okay. So I did cheat. Okay. I'm a very insecure person. Not that that's an excuse, but in my I didn't date in my teenage years and then in my 20s was my first time ever drinking alcohol and I'm the type of person that I overdo everything and if anyone showed me any interest when I was out I'd be so excited I'd be like let's make out and then the next morning I'd wake up and be like oh I can't believe I did that and then I'd have some explaining to do <laughs> but it was it was just such a messy period my 20s yeah. and such a dark spot on my my life but yeah. it was a huge learning experience and i i also have been cheated on presumably i mean i had a girlfriend she went on vacation and then came back broke up with me and then before i knew it she was 
dating the person from the place where she went on the vacation. So I'm not a detective, but I would think there was some hanky-panky going on. I would think so. But yeah, don't recommend cheating as, you know, the person that has done it. But I think that in both of our circumstances, it was such a learning phase for us. And, you know, for me, I I always, I here's something I do pride myself on is that being a nice person, being a good person. However, obviously I was not a nice person. I was not a good person in these circumstances. I was being selfish, but I don't think I realized the impact that -hmm. I could have on somebody else. And like for for a while there, I I had two boyfriends. I had two boyfriends and they didn't know anybody. You were cheating on both of them. They didn't know about That's called polygamy. No, I think polygamy is when they know about it. Oh. It's called cheating, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. And it was uh, like, it's it's really awful. And, you know, cheaters, I find, have the most trust issues out of anybody because they are more suspecting. They like know the games that people might play, the way they might lie. Hit me with some facts, Alex. <clears throat> All right. So I looked up a 2018 study that was led by, by a woman named Wendy Wang, and she worked for the Institute of Family Studies. So she found of the people that would admit to cheating, because a lot of people don't, uh, that 20% of the men that she studied admitted to cheating and 13% of women. So the numbers aren't excruciatingly high. The majority of people obviously don't do it. And I don't think it's a surprise that more men cheat or at least admit to cheating. However, there was another study that showed that women in recent decades have been cheating more and way more vocal about it. Like kind of finding something possibly empowering about it. I think it's become more acceptable for women to cheat. But it's not really acceptable for anybody to cheat. No, but more acceptable for women to cheat. Maybe. I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there is that. In fact, in the movie On the Rocks, which Mm -hmm. we were talking about in the first segment, Bill Murray was bringing that up, how when a woman cheats, it's, it's so celebrated. And when a man cheats, he's like, he might as well go to prison. Yeah. Yeah. I say we just, you know. Nobody does it. We treat everybody the same and nobody does it. And if you're in a relationship that you feel Agreed. like you have We're just to cheat talking in, about this from looking outside, yeah. but I, I don't want to break away from the no, hardcore no, no, sorry, facts right. here. But uh, this is interesting to me. So, so this is another fact that, again, is not a surprise, but I want your take on it. So it talks about men who didn't grow up in intact families and those who rarely or never attend religious services. They're way more likely to cheat than men who come from intact families and are religious or faithful in some way. So you are not religious. And your, your family is not intact in a traditional sense. And in fact, I made a documentary when I was 15 about my mom's mm. cheating boyfriend. So my parents were divorced, obviously. But and my mom's boyfriend was cheating on her. And my friends uh, called me at the place where the guy was on a date with another woman. And I grabbed my camcorder and filmed this whole epic documentary. Yeah. So I thought I was going to be a crusader against cheating. But then when I got into my 20s and alcohol got into the mix, all morality almost went away with it. Now, see, you talk about alcohol being the basis in your cheating. It wasn't for me, obviously. That would exacerbate something like that. But I think that some of those decisions... Oh, you were cheating sober? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I wasn't cheating sober. Never? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I cheated hungover, maybe. So... You know, having been in these circumstances, having been brought up in, you know, the way you were brought up, how do you think that has changed 
I guess, since your 20s. Because another thing that, you know, people say is, well, once a cheater, always a cheater. But I looked at uh, a woman named Tammy Nelson. She's a psychotherapist and a consultant for Ashley Madison, which is what helps people cheat. But she says that, no, it's not true. Once a cheater does not always mean a cheater. Yes, serial cheaters do exist. And obviously she'd see that on Ashley Madison. But it's not true. And it has a lot to do with why people cheat in the phase of their life that they're in. Mm-hmm. So I was curious, like, you know, all of those things and talking to you, I think, as a guy, how have you grown, I guess? Well, for me, I felt like I, when I was in elementary school, I was considered a very attractive guy in elementary. Then I got to high school where I thought I was really going to blossom. And that was a time I also thought I was going to experiment with girlfriends and kissing and maybe even lose my virginity. (laughs) And I had none of that. And I, I got it in my mind, I'm never going to get the opportunity to like sow my wild oats or whatever right. that expression may be. And then I got the one girlfriend and then I, w- I thought we were going to get married and everything was going to be wonderful. But then she went on a vacation, cheated on me. And then I was single and I'm thinking I'm never going to have a girlfriend again. A year goes by, I get a girlfriend and then I got a job, which was high status. Mm-hmm. And I got a, a bit of a, an ego or something and thought, oh, maybe I can get make up for lost time. Right. And when you have alcohol in the mix and you're an idiot, and I, <laughs> I truly do believe your brain doesn't form until you are 25. It, it doesn't. In my case, I think it's closer to 35. I feel like almost just now when Betty was born, I became conscious of, like, I, I can't believe some of the stuff I've done in my life. Even wild things I would do on video. I couldn't even imagine doing anything mm. that I did in my past. I'm such a different person. I'm very risk adverse. You know? <laughs> I think that's how I feel too. And I wonder if it is because we had these past relationships where we were not risk adverse and you know, we saw the effects of it. We saw the damage it can do. And if you are somebody that has been cheated on, obviously, and like Shane, you had gone through this, it feels, it feels terrible. It feels awful. And, you know, like I've lost so much sleep over, you know, the way I behaved in previous relationships, but I don't feel like that will ever happen again just because I, I, you, I'm, ch- I'm so changed and I, I know what I want. I've- it never tarnished your reputation though, which is odd. And to what we were mm. referring to earlier, how women can get off a little bit better. When we were about to date, my reputation was I'm an evil cheater. And you got messages even from women saying, yeah, he's he's I bad did. guy. And you, all the, everybody told me she's she's too good for you. She's too nice. Well, I never admitted to the cheating. Okay, <laughs> See, well, everyone's because I I fessed up to it and was owning it, I guess, and that made my reputation terrible. And I knew people in my life that were doing similar actions to me who would never admit to it, and mm. they have you know sterling reputations. And you were one of those people. Yeah. So I was shocked when we were having our first one of our first pillow talking sessions and you revealed to me that you were a cheater and it it honestly got me on edge. It got me very worried. And then when we started going out and you weren't 
paying attention to me. It made me think wild thoughts mm. that scared me for our relationship. Knowing you now, I know you were putting on an act and a facade. But at the time, I truly didn't think our relationship was going to stand the test of time. Because <laughs> you were exaggerating your actions to yeah. behave the way you think I would. Mm-hmm. To kind of beat me at my own medicine. And I was just horrified at what I was witnessing every time we went out. And I found like you did a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde act. When we were hanging out, you were the sweetest little thing. And then you'd get two drinks and you'd be dancing on the bar. And I'd be like, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, I I do think that we got our backs up a little bit. And we both kind of got on the defense because we are very similar in a lot of ways. And that's one of the ways in which we are incredibly similar. However... You know, having been through all that, I think neither of us want the hassle. And again, like oats have been sown. We get what we want. We're happy here. We don't want to screw it up at this point. And honestly, like lucky for us in the positions that we have been in that we did find each other and that we did find something great because, you know, like who knows? We could have both been so screwed up from all these things that we just ended up in unhappy relationships mm-hmm. but uh, so this is going to be about a four-hour podcast right because we're on the first question all right all right next question <laughs> next question we'll speed through do you think parents of adopted kids should tell them and if so at what age so i have no basis for this i do have friends that were adopted but yeah i i don't know obviously having not been adopted myself and not having adopted kids so I did look it up and obviously specifically like each family needs to make a decision that's best for them and I I don't think there's any black and white just to chime in here on black and white there's Hmm. some cases like my friend who is adopted his parents are white and he is not yeah so and I find that in a a, not majority but in a lot fair amount of cases the people come from a different background and even a haircut. Like mm-hmm. if both parents have red hair and you, you're a tanned blonde boy who looks very different than the parents, it might be so glaringly obvious, especially mm-hmm. in cases where there is clear ethnic differences where you just have to for that reason. Yeah. And so, you know, it is recommended now that you do tell these like your kids obviously however up until the 1970s the majority of parents and the invoke thing to do was to not tell them at all to never even if you had like you're a caucasian family obviously obviously not you didn't let me finish my question okay i was gonna say asian boy (laughs) but if you have kids that would pass biologically as your own then they just wouldn't tell them a lot of the time However, Amanda Baden, who's a professor at Montclair State University, she's been studying adoption and, you know, adoption-related issues for the past 25 years. She recently published a study that suggests that adoptees should know their status by the age of three. So that means that you're telling your kid three and under. I like that. that. I know. And that is the prime time to tell them. Otherwise, they have noticed that there might be a negative impact on their life satisfaction or mental health as they get older. So if your kid is three and younger and you are trying to, you know, tell them their birth story, how they were brought in your family, you can make their adoption story, their birth story, and make it so special and so unique and so, you know, one with your family values that it's just as beautiful as anything else. And then this way, they'll have always that idea 
of well, kind it's of, all they've ever known. It's yeah. not jarring. I, I would yeah. think it can be fairly traumatic if you're seven. You feel something so intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be good. It could be bad. And if it's bad, it's probably not worth it. So tell them when they're three and they'll never remember it. And it'll be all they've really well, known. Their too, whole life. Like if you find out at a later age, which is what I was reading in the studies, that's a lot of things to consider. A lot of questions are going to have all at once. But if it's integrated into their life from, you know, the time you have them then they're getting what they can handle at the right times. And it's just, it's more of a natural progression. And it's interesting, if we talk to Perez Hilton on this podcast, and his kids, he's a gay father, a single gay father, and his kids came to be through IVF, his sperm, and another woman's egg, and then surrogacy. And he told us, like, his kids are very young. Like, I think they're toddlers. And he's been telling them their birth story since they could talk and they know that they used you know daddy's sperm he like gave them the scientific words and a another lady's egg and the lady had them and then they came to daddy's house and it's like a really beautiful unique story for that family so i think more than anything just an open communicative relationship between parents and kids is always going to lead to you know more positive mental health and better life satisfaction and this is just like one thing that kind of fits under that umbrella. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Next question. Would you ever share your birth videos with your friends on social media? We have. Well, we, we shared it on my account. So you can find both videos of me giving birth are on this family tree account. But that's an account dedicated to motherhood and parenting and pregnancy and things like that. So it's very much in the realm. So it's like people that are following me are kind of expecting that kind of material. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't just like drop it in my girl chat and be like, hey, guys, like watch Betty barrel out of my vagina, you know? Yeah, but you would if they asked, you would share it if they asked. But I wouldn't just be like, does anybody want to see this? Because you know? some of my buddies have been asking to see it because it's buried in your account right now. <laughs> Would you be upset if I sent it? No, I, I, I don't But if care. I took the sensor part off? No, I don't really care. You would let my buddy see your vagina? Well, you can't even really see it. You just see the kid just crawling out Yeah. more than anything. Yeah. You'd be comfortable with that, though. No, I've already put it out there. Good to know. But we covered it up with like a, uh, an emoji. Yeah, because I didn't want people to lose their lunch. But if your friends are willing to lose their lunch, then they can they can see it. Wow, I consider that cheating, Alex. <laughs> You're old old ways die hard, eh? It's educational. Mm. All right, so trust me, that wouldn't be doing me any favors. Next question. Some guys like it. Continue. How do you not instill your own fears into your child? So this is interesting because I hadn't really considered it. But then when I started thinking about this question, I thought, okay, you know what, this is really good because sometimes I find that I get, you know, nervous that maybe Lucy or Betty will develop some of the same anxiety Shane has or some of the same tendencies that I have. So Dr. Susan Newman, who's a psychologist, she wrote an article for Psychology Today. She just wrote it today. No, Psychology Today. Continue. So the first tip. So if you have a persistent fear, allow the other adults in your life to model lack of that fear. So like say you're scared of a dog, right? And you're scared a dog's going to bite you or lick you or whatever. Then you don't be the one to go around dogs with your kids and make a point to get another adult that you trust to kind of expose your kid to the dogs and show them how a loving relationship can be with a dog and like petting it and letting it kiss your hand and things like that so that you're fear isn't 
you know, being like on blast for your kids to see. And they can see that just because mom's scared of it doesn't mean all adults are. And there's nothing to inherently be scared of. Let's hope the dog doesn't bite the kid on that one time you trust it. <laughs> Let's hope. But obviously, don't let your kid near a dog that you can't trust. Uh, next. You never know. Pay attention to your language. So anxious parents can find themselves constantly reminding their kids to be careful, but that phrase is too nonspecific and it can really confuse kids. Uh, and really, like how many times do you say, hey, like Lucy, be careful, be careful. It's too repetitive, so it loses all meaning for them. So it's like if Lucy is, you know, on like logs in the water and like walking across logs, be like, Lucy, that log looks wobbly. Get off that. And the one beside it is sturdy and really help them become problem solvers. And when they get in a scary situation, help them through your language, you know, make logical decisions to find ways out of it. But then they're going to grow a fear of wobbly logs. (laughs) And then we need to call in another adult who's not scared of wobbly logs. This is all mixed messages. Next, verbalize the strategies. So again, you know, communication, language, but verbalize the strategies you use to make yourself less anxious. So like if you are scared of heights, okay, and we're all up at the top of the CN Tower and we're standing on the glass ceiling or the glass floor, I guess, looking down, you know, you, you're like shitting yourself terrified use the strategies that you might tell yourself in your head to feel more comfortable say them out loud so say this floor is sturdy even though this glass looks like it might break it won't because it's very thick and look at the amazing view we have from up here so it's like very rudimentary it's very simple but that can help ease a child's fear a lot especially if they're sensing that you are scared easier said than done though of course but here's the thing it becomes good for you too Right? Because then it eases your mind, hopefully, and it will definitely ease your child. Uh, yeah, I just think if you're scared of heights, maybe don't go on like the skywalk with your kid <laughs> so and you send an someone to model else. That. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you have really little kids, you could find relevant books or create your own bedtime stories that have characters coping in different situations in which they might be fearful or nervous or anxious. And the last one that I found helpful was help your child understand and label specific emotions. So research shows that people who are able to identify their emotions and are more in tune with that, they tend to regulate them better. So even honestly, like Lucy, we've really been trying to help her vocalize her emotions because right after we had Betty, she was tantruming all the time and it was really hard to deal with. It was exhausting. But then she slowly became, because we started shifting our language, able to say mommy I'm sad and then she wouldn't tantrum she'd just say she was sad say why she was sad and honestly her regulation her self-regulation has gotten so much better since that time I'm scared to make a sandwich with mayonnaise for Lucy I hope she never likes that likes mayonnaise yeah I'm scared of mayonnaise you're not scared of it you just don't like it I have a fear of it is there is there a phobia mayonnaise phobia I guarantee there is I think a lot of people a lot of people don't like it. I like how sure you are. It has to be because I'm scared of it. Appar- hey, apparently fear of mayo is a thing and it's called mayophobia. It's not. Yes. Mayophobia? Yeah. The psychological understanding of mayophobia is tied to evolution. Spoon University <laughs> writes, evolutionarily, humans are built to reject things that remind them of illness. Why Wait. does mayo remind you of illness? Okay, on a second. We don't like things that are slimy or sticky because they remind us of spoiled and rotten foods. The consistency is weird to me, Rach goes on. I love to make aioli or mayonnaise, and I will eat it if I make it, 
but something about shelf-stable egg freaks me out. Mm. So I have a fear of mayonnaise. Fair enough. But because we encourage Nate to face his phobia of snakes... Okay, now it goes into snakes. All right, all right. Understandable. But that does make sense because I'm way less scared of homemade aioli or... Well, I've put egg in our drinks before. Egg, yeah. Yeah. Mayonnaise just grosses me the F out. (laughs) And I'm scared of it. Legitimately not... Mayophobic. Yeah. Now that I know it exists. Okay. So next question. When a toddler hits their head, how do you know if you need to see a doctor? They don't wake up, right? Well, if they don't wake up, yeah. Number one. You're in an ambulance. You're on your way to that hospital. Um, But if it happens to an infant, you need to see a doctor right away. If it's an infant, just because they do have the soft spots on their head. Uh, But if you have a toddler, I'm going to give you some following symptoms in which you would need to see a doctor like immediately so first of all if they lose consciousness even for just a moment like even Mm -hmm. if it's quick if they're out at all get them to a hospital and if they won't stop crying if they complain of head and neck pain but again like if you have a kid who's too young to verbalize that they just might be crying uncontrollably Uh, if they vomit one thing said if they vomit more than once another thing said if they vomit at all so i'd play it safe and go if they vomit at all Uh, Next, if they won't wake up easily, so like if they're getting really sleepy and you can't keep them awake, uh, if they become hard to comfort, or if they're not walking and talking normally. So the bottom line, trust your instincts, and if something doesn't seem right or your child seems too drowsy, get them checked out ASAP. Like, always better safe than sorry in my book, right? No, I'd rather be sorry. (laughs) Yes, Alex, correct saying. I don't know what I was looking for there. No, it's a good saying. You didn't make that up, though. (laughs) All right, last last topic tonight. Is it ever too late to change careers? So I say no. Like that, it depends what you want. Might it make it more difficult for you in the career path you're getting into because you don't have ten years behind you? Of course. But what do you want from it? Are is it going to make you truly happier? Or do you think you'll be able to make more money? Whatever it is, it's not too late. What do you think? It might be easier to achieve it too because you'll be so focused and so mm. scared that you are older you're not going to procrastinate my friend has a famous saying if you want something done give it to someone who has very little time because you know they're going to do it because they're not going to have that i'll do it tomorrow procrastination Mm -hmm. so i think it could be your superpower the fact that you think that it might be too late if you actually jump into it yeah because that fear is a, a massive driving force and i find anytime i've got i have to do something i do it and i do it well no, I think that's a really good take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wanted to point out a few famous people who had a career change midstream. So first, Stephen King was a janitor, was he not? You're the reason. I don't know anything about <laughs> Stephen King. Apparently, he was a janitor before he started selling books. Uh, Julia Child, this one totally took me by surprise. So Julia Child, a famous chef, she was a spy. She worked for the Office of Strategic Services in World War II, which was like the precursor to the CIA. Mm-hmm. Isn't that neat? Mm-hmm. So she goes from there to being a famous chef. And Cardi B was a stripper. Wow. Became a musician, singer, wow. rapper. Yeah. So there we have it. It's never too late. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think a good thing to maybe try is to dip your toe in the water and overexert yourself for mm. a short period of time to see if you actually like it. Sometimes the grass seems a lot greener until you start mowing the lawn. It's like cheating. 
Yes, it's like cheating. <laughs> so that's that's the episode, babe. That is the episode. Hey, everybody. Thank you for the five-star rating. Did you give us a five-star rating? If you could scroll down on that app thing and hit the write a review and the five-star rating, we would really appreciate it. Every review matters. Every star matters. It does. It puts us in an algorithm. Thank you so much for listening to this this Family Family Tree Tree Podcast. Podcast. Episode 69.